Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. On our last podcast, I began discussing the ship Judea as the most overlooked character in Joseph Conrad's short story, Youth. It is as if the character Marlowe is in a romantic relationship with the Judea. Now, here's what Marlowe states on page 9, and this is page 9 of my book. There was a touch of romance in it, something that made me love the old thing, something that appealed to my youth. It should not be hard for readers to see that the Judea is a type of first love for Marlowe. So, for today's program, I want to continue discussing the Judea, her final days, and what she does for Marlowe. Now, the last time uh, we were talking about the Judea, and uh, in, in the story, the Judea was about to expire because of old age. Yet, we uh, also saw that she was still very capable of unleashing the power of Marlowe's youth. Now, I think it would be a good idea for you to review Conrad's magnificent description of the effort to keep the Judea afloat. And this is, this is the pumping incident is what I'm talking about. And really, it was like massive CPR. And, uh, uh, you know, you can look at the bottom of page 13 and the top of page 14 for that description. Now, what, what I wanted to do is uh, I, I want to start today's program by reading some more off of uh, page 14. And this is, this is Marlowe's. Um, it's kind of his reaction to what, what he saw the Judea go through. And, and this is up, up in, towards the top of the page there. It says, And there was somehow in me the thought, This is the deuce of an adventure, something you read about. It is my first voyage as a second mate, and I am only twenty, and here I am lasting it out as well of any of these men and keeping my chaps to the mark. I was pleased. I would not have given up the experience for worlds. I had moments of exultation. Whenever the old dismantled craft pitched heavily with her counter high in the air, she seemed to me to throw up like an appeal, like a defiance, like a cry to the clouds without mercy. The words written on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. And so, so look, at, look at how he really describes the Judea. He, he says that she was defiant. Even though she was old, she was still going to fight her way through the sea. Uh, you know, he said that she, she had a motto for her life, and her, her motto was to do or die. And then notice what, what he also said there uh, in the very next paragraph. It's, I think it's a great paragraph. And, and essentially, this is what, what I mean when I say of what the Judea did for him. It's like, it's like she really, you know, helped him to live his youth. She, she helped him to live the challenge of his youth. And she inspired him to challenge himself. The, the next paragraph reads, O oh, youth, the strength of it, the faith of it, the imagination of it. To me, she was not an old rattletrap carting about the world, a lot of coal for a freight. To me, she was the endeavor, the test, the trial of life. 
I think of her with pleasure, with affection, with regret, as you would think of someone dead you have loved. I shall never forget her. And then he says, pass the bottle. So obviously the pass the bottle means he's talking to these members of his or his friends of his that are listening to this story. But but uh, notice how how positive she is about the Judea and what this has done for him. And in other words, the fact that she's failing, the fact that she's getting older, it, it, he didn't dislike her. In fact, what he thought was that she challenged him. She challenged him to really uh, extend himself and to really um, you know, keep moving forward, let's say. Notice he goes on to say, One night when tied to the mast, as I explained, we were pumping on, deafened with the wind, without spirit enough to us to wish ourselves dead, a heavy, cra- a, a heavy sea crashed aboard my aboard and swept clean over us. As soon as I got my breath, I shouted as in duty bound, Keep on, boys! When suddenly I felt something hard floating on the deck strike the calf of my leg, I made a grab at it and missed. It was so dark we could not see each other's faces within a foot. You understand. And so, so the, the thing is, look at what he said. It even inspired him to, to keep the other shipmates working and working hard and so so the 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 thing is he said i shall never forget her and so so here he has all these fond memories remember now he's in his uh, early 40s when he's telling this story to his friends and so he says i will never never forget her now i think one of the things about the story again is is uh what's really interesting is you know here you think wow this this uh, ship is really going to go it's going to be it's going to be done for, but essentially what we find is Conrad writes for us that well that you the Judea does sail to live again, or I should say she does sail again. In other words, she's not really going to die, and so uh, you know if you uh, turn over with me to page uh, like I said it's page sixteen in uh, in my book, but. Uh, you know, they, they finally, you know, get out of the, the situation they're in. Um, uh, well, maybe I, maybe I better start reading at the bottom of page 15. Uh, you know, they, uh, they, they're pumping, they're getting her, you know, she's not really going under. They thought she was going to go under. And uh, uh, they, they do meet another gale. This is on page 15 towards the bottom of the page. It says, One would think that the sole purpose of that fiendish gale had been to make a lunatic of the poor devil of a mulatto. And there he's talking about Abraham. And it says, The wind came, uh, he, he said, uh, I, I skipped down too far there. Uh, just to continue the bottom of the quote, he says, We put her head for home, and would you believe it? The wind came east right in our teeth. It blew fresh. It blew continuously. We had to beat up every inch of the way. But she did not leak so badly the water keeping comparatively smooth, two hours pumping in every four is no joke, but it kept her afloat as far as Falmouth. And so, so in other words, you know, she makes it. She makes it. She, she doesn't go under. She doesn't drown. You know, th- they don't lose her. She makes it. Now, th- this, uh, this area called Falmouth, we know that is a seaport in Cornwall. So this is a, this is a real seaport. And obviously, you can see that, that Conrad loved England. He loved the sea, and he loved the seaports. Uh, he goes on at the bottom of page 15. He says, The good people there live on casualties of the sea, and no doubt were glad to see us. A hungry crowd of shipwrights 
sharpened our chisels at the sight of that carcass of a ship. And so, so uh, I, I don't intend to say that she was in good shape, but she was still, you know, she could still be called a ship. But notice that Marlowe calls her a carcass of a ship. And, uh, you know, I, I, he's, uh, Conrad is just so descriptive here. I'll just go on there. It says, they had pretty pickings off us before they were done. I fancy the owner was already in a tight place. There were delays. Then it was decided to take part of the cargo out and cock her topsides. This was done. The repairs finished, cargo reshipped, a new crew came on board, and we went out for Bangkok. At the end of the week, we were back again. The crew said they weren't going to Bangkok. 150 days passage and something hooker that wanted pumping eight hours out of the 24, and the nautical papers inserted again the little paragraph, Judea, Bark, tying to Bangkok, Coles, put back to Falmouth, leaky, and with crew refusing duty. So, so even though they make it all the way back, when they make it back through another gale, they, they had some repairs done, there's still more delays. And, uh, you know, so, so I, I think if you, if you look at the story, certainly the Judea is, well, in the middle of it all. But it's almost like um, Marlowe wants to put the blames on everybody else. It's, it's like it was, it's outside of her that the, that the, the Judea is still someone that, that needs respect. Notice he goes on to say there were more delays, more tinkering. The owner came down for a day and said she was as right as a little fiddle. Poor old Captain Beard looked like the ghost of a, a Geordie skipper to the worry and humiliation of it. Remember, he was 60 and it was his first command. Man said it was a foolish business and would end badly. But notice what, what uh, Marlowe says. He says, I love the ship more than ever and wanted awfully to get to Bangkok. To Bangkok, magic name, blessed name. Mesopotamia wasn't a patch on it. Remember, I was 20, and it was my first uh, second mate's billet, and the East was waiting for me. And so, so he still had faith in the Judea. I mean, even though there were, there were more delays, he still had a lot of faith in her. And, uh, um, you know, it, it, it's really quite amazing what, what he's saying there. And he said, I love the ship more than ever. And so, so uh, uh, he really saw there was a lot advantage for him, you know, uh, for his youth. And uh, th- there is a lot to youth that, that uh, I think we need to, to talk about here in the book. And we'll be talking about this quite a bit before this uh, little series is over. But, but certainly, uh, all youth loves challenge. And uh, uh, the thing is, is, is challenge, when we go out and meet challenges, it does, well, it does energize our lives. And I think even uh, uh, people, may even, maybe even my age, should learn that. Learn from youth that the, you, know, you should keep yourself challenged, keep yourself going forward. Um, <clears throat> uh, let's just go on now. Uh, I wanted to um, bring up some other points now. Uh, you know, as we as we go uh, go on, one one of the things I think is most interesting in this story, and what what I want to call it, um, is the rat prophecy. <laughs> and you know, I've heard about this you know from other other writers, and uh, it is kind of a belief 
um, you know, I think in in the shipping industry, that when all the rats jump ship, that the the ship is in trouble. It's kind of like a prophecy. So, so uh, uh, even if you read, the, you know, things like Moby Dick and some of the other things like that, there's rats are always a problem on ships, which uh, makes me think I'm really glad I was never in the merchant marines or anything like that because you'd have to deal with rats all the time. But uh, this is. Um, this is page 17, and, and I do think it's, it's kind of interesting. I, I want to read a paragraph above the paragraph about the rights, the rats. But, but uh, here they were having all these delays, and they never thought they were going to be able to get to Bangkok. You know, even the people, you know, in this little town or this little, um, I guess it's, uh, it was Falmouth, or that, that seaport in Cornwall, they were always picking on these, these poor sailors, because they they weren't getting anywhere, and I guess this there was a history about the Judea that that ship couldn't get, you know get out of of English waters, but uh, you know there was a lot of problems with the people and the delays too, and, and how they wanted to handle them. But on the middle of page seventeen, he says suddenly a man, some kind of agent to somebody, appeared with full powers. He had grog blossoms all over his face, an indomitable uh, energy. And was a jolly soul. Now, grog blossoms are just—that's uh, the facial redness that that comes from drinking grog, I guess, or rum. And so he said, um, he said, we leaped into life again. A hull came alongside, took our cargo, and then we went to dry dock to get our copper stripped. And uh, and and notice how Marlowe defends you, the the Judea. He says, no wonder she leaked. The poor thing, strained beyond endurance by the gale. Had, it had, as if in disgust, spat out all the oakum, and the oakum are basically are just tarred uh, rope fibers and they, they're using to cock a ship. He said, the poor thing, strained beyond endurance by the gale, had, as if in disgust, spat all the oakum of her lower seams. She was recalked, new coppered, and made as tight as a bottle. We went back to the hulk and reshipped our cargo. And so, so the, the, the thing is, here's someone finally came in, and uh, it, it, what's funny about it, it he, he's not the captain. You know, he's, uh, he's not, uh, I guess Marlowe is the, the second mate. He's not there. First mate isn't there. But here we have this some man nobody knows, and he's got grog blossoms all over his face. But he actually got the job done that needed to get done so they could keep moving on. But, but here's where the rat prophecy comes in. He goes on to the, the, almost to the the last paragraph on that page, he says, then on a fine moonlit night, all the rats left the ship. <laughs> and so, so uh, can you imagine the scene? And he goes on to say, we, we had been infested with them. They had destroyed our sails, consumed more stores than the crew, affably shared our beds and our dangers. And now when the ship was made seaworthy, concluded to clear out. I called man to enjoy the spectacle. Rat after rat appeared on our rail, took a last look over his shoulder, leaped with a hollow thud into the empty hulk. And what he means there, there was another ship, I guess, was just you know, the only thing left was the hulk. He said, we tried to count them, but soon lost the tail or the count. Man said, well, well, don't, think to, don't talk to me about the intelligence of rats. They ought to have left before when we had that narrow squeak from the foundering. Um, there you have the proof how silly is the superstition about them. They leave a good ship for an old rotten hulk. Where 
there is nothing to eat to the fools. I don't believe they know what is safe or what is good for them any more than you or I. And so, so that is kind of, uh, you know, a, a thing in the shipping industry. At least it was, you know, quite a while ago that if the rats jump ship, you're in big trouble. He goes on to say, and after some more talk, we agreed that the wisdom of rats had been grossly overrated, being in fact no greater than that of men. And so, so there, uh, I think Conrad is getting some digs in that, uh, you know, he thinks some people can't think better than rats. Anyway, um, but he goes on to say there, the story of the ship was known by this all up the channel from Land's End to the Forelands, and we could... and we could get no crew on the south coast. They sent us one all complete from Liverpool, and we left once more for Bangkok. So you know, you think about this. You, you would think that if they really wanted to get this coal all the way to Bangkok, they would have, they would have uh, changed ships. But they never, they never did change ships. But, but look at what he's saying. Uh, he, he goes on to talk about the Judea again. He says, We had fair breezes, smooth water right into the tropics, and the old Judea lumbered along in the sunshine. When she went eight knots, everything cracked aloft, and we tied our caps to our heads, but mostly she strolled on at the rate of three miles an hour. Now, if you think about the distance it would take to get to Bangkok from England, that's a long voyage ahead of them. He said, what could you expect? She was tired, that old ship. Her youth was where mine is, where yours is. You fellows who listen to this yarn, and what friend would throw your years and your weariness in your face? And so so he's saying, look, she is an old ship, and uh, yeah, she was tired, but she was still willing to work. And and like uh, he, he looks at his, his other friends that are there listening to the story, he said, yeah, well, how... I mean, you're all feeling tired. We're all feeling tired. Um, uh, He said, uh, how would you like that thrown in your face? And he goes on to say, we didn't grumble at her. To us, apt at least, it seemed as though we had been born in her, reared in her, and had lived in her for ages, had never known any other ship. I would just as soon have abused the old village church at home for not being a cathedral. (laughs) And so so, uh, uh, look at how Marlowe is still absolutely enthralled with the ship. And uh, he said, look, I'm not going to beat her up. I'm not going to uh, complain about her. I'm not going to uh, you know, put her down because she's getting old and tired. And remember, he thought there was some romance in being with the Judea. And so, so you know, he, he treats her as if she is like a living person. And like I said to you on the last program, it's a it's, it's, uh, to me, it's it's like he almost looks at her like the captain's wife. You know, she had the, uh, a wrinkly old face like a winter apple, but she had the, the body of a young woman. And so, so or, or, or yeah, I think, I think the, the, maybe the, he said the figure of a young woman. So, um, you know, so, so you can see that he really is thinking a lot about the ship. Now, but, but notice what he says there about what he was learning from her. And this is the next paragraph. This is still on page 18. It says, And for me, there was also my youth to make me patient. There was all the east before me and all life, and the thought that I had been tried in that ship and had come out pretty well. And I thought of men of old who centuries ago 
went the road went that road in ships that sailed no better to the land of palms and spices and yellow sands and of brown nations ruled by kings more cruel than Nero the Roman and more splendid than Solomon the Jew. The old bark lumbered on, heavy with her age and the burden of her cargo, while I lived the life of youth and ignorance and hope. She lumbered on through an inter- interminable procession of days, and the fresh gilding flashed back at the setting sun, seemed to cry out over the darkening sea the words painted on her stern, Judea, London, do or die. And so, so look, look at his impression of, of what uh, he was learning from the ship. And, and the, you know, Conrad brings this back over and over again through Marlowe. It's like, you, you know, you do it or you die. And, and in other words, you just fight and fight and fight and you accomplish, even if it does take your death. And so, so that is kind of like the, uh, you know, the energy of youth. And I think all of us, uh, even those of us that are maybe older, should, uh, should look at that sometimes and say, you know, we should still challenge ourselves. We should still, uh, you know, do things. There are certain tasks that we just have to face in our lives and, uh, you know, do it with gusto. And uh, this is the way Marlowe felt. And uh, um, so, but, but in, in many ways, as we continue through the story, we'll see that, um, you know, the Judea is definitely, uh, you know, going to, going to die. Um, and she's going to be gone. But remember uh, what, Car- what um, Marlowe says here, not Conrad, what Marlowe says is, uh, you know, essentially that they leap to life again. And, uh, you know, uh, they, they, they had another chance. And it's like the Judea gave them that chance. And uh, the, the, it was the Judea that was still going to take them, or they thought at that time was still going to take them on to Bangkok. And so, so he was really, really for her. And, uh, uh, but then it doesn't, again, it only takes a few paragraphs. And, of course, we do have to remember this is a short story. He's, it's not going to be you know, as developed as would a, you know, a longer uh, novel. And it, it said it's after he makes, makes this fantastic statement about her, she's Judea, London, or die, you know, there's another mishap. And, of course, this mishap is, is going to, you know, bring her death. And uh, uh, essentially, um, you know, we're going to see, see the ship go down. And in some ways, I, I look at this as uh, uh, Marlowe or Conrad, I guess we could say, is uh, getting us to see uh, maybe the Judea who's going to be thrown onto a funeral pyre. Um, you know, like, uh, you know, the, they did it of old with, uh, with people that died. They just, you know, they put them on a pyre and then lit the fire. So um, at the very bottom of page 18, the next gloomy or the dangerous thing begins to happen. He says, one Saturday evening, I being off duty, the men asked me to give them an extra bucket of water or so for washing clothes. As I did not wish to screw on the fresh water pump so late, I went forward whistling and with a key in my hand to unlock the four-peak scuttle, intending to serve the water out of a spare tank we kept there. And what does he discover? He discovers that there's something seriously wrong with the cargo. And remember, it is coal. And uh, when coal gets wet, coal can start on fire. 
And so he goes on with the paragraph. It says, the smell down below was unexpected as it was frightful. This is page 19, by the way. One would have thought hundreds of paraffin lamps had been flaring, smoking that hole for days. I was glad to get out. The man with me coughed and said, funny smell, sir, I answered negligently. It's good for health, they say, and walked aft. The first thing I did was to put my head down the square of the midship ventilator. As I lifted the lid, a visible breath, something like a thin fog, a puff of faint haze, rose from the opening. The ascending air was hot and had a heavy, sooty, paraffiny smell. I gave one smith, uh, excuse me, I gave one sniff and put down the lid gently. It was no use choking myself. The cargo was on fire. Now, we have to remember that this isn't necessarily the Judea on fire, but it is the cargo on fire. And, uh, uh, but if you look at the next paragraph, he says, next day she began to smoke in earnest. So, so I guess I, you know, we really should say that, that uh, even though maybe the uh, Judea didn't cause it, uh, she did have the fire in her belly. It says, you see it as was to be expected, for though the coal was of a safe kind, the cargo had been so handled, so broken up with handling, that it looked more like smithy coal than anything else. And uh, smithy coal essentially is coal broken into small pieces, so it will burn quickly. So that was a, a dangerous thing. And you would think that Captain Beardsley would have uh, figured that out before they even started. He goes on to say, then it had been wetted more than once. It rained all the time we were taking it back from the hulk. And now with this long passage, it got heated. There was another case of spontaneous combustion. And so, so here, now they've got a really big problem because they're out in the Indian Ocean. And, you know, the ship has a cargo that's on fire. But, but uh, in some ways, I think Captain Beardsley, um, you know, he's, uh, he's got some courage here. And this is, again, at the bottom of page 19. It says, the captain called us into the cabin. He had a chart spread on the table and looked unhappy. He said, the coast of West Australia is near, but I mean to proceed to our destination. It is the hurricane month, too but we will just keep her, her head for Bangkok and fight the fire. No more putting back anywhere if we all get roasted. We will try first to stifle this, uh, I'm not going to pass that word, combustion by want of air. And so, so the, the thing is, is, this is a little bit of what I was saying before, is that uh, uh, Mr. Beardsley or Captain Beardsley had a lot to lose here. Uh, this was his first, um, you know, time to really sail a ship as as the captain and he was not having a good time he was not getting very far at all and uh, but he but he said hey we've got to do this we've got to keep going forward we got to just fight the fire and uh, uh, as it turns out it probably wasn't the best decision but for Conrad or maybe I shouldn't say Conrad excuse me but for Marlowe wow this just excited him he, he said uh, uh uh, again, like his youth. His youth was just challenge. He loved the challenge of it. He goes on then to say, we tried, we battened down everything, and she still smoked. The smoke kept coming out through imperceptible crevices. It forced itself through bulkheads and covers. It oozed here and there and everywhere in slender threads and invisible film. In an incomprehensible manner, it made its way into the cabin, into the forecastle. It poisoned the sheltered places on the deck. It could be sniffed as high as the main yard. 
Uh, it was clear that if the smoke came out in the air, uh, out the air came in. This was disheartening. The combustion refused to be stifled. So hopefully I didn't botch that too much. But it, again, the sentence was, if the smoke came out, the air came in. So in other words, the air kept fueling the fire. He said, we resolved to try water and took the hatches off. Enormous volumes of smoke, whitish, yellowish, thick, greasy, misty, choking, ascended as high as the trucks. He said, all hands cleared off aft. Then the poisonous cloud blew away, and we went back to work in the smoke that was now, was, excuse me, we went back to work in a smoke that was no thicker now than that of an ordinary factory chimney. So, so th- they went and they, they, they did all of these things to keep it all going. And it said, um, uh, I'm, I'm going to skip one paragraph. It says, and she crawled on, do or die, in the serene weather. The sky was a miracle of purity, a miracle of azure. The sea was polished, was blue, was, was pellucid was sparkling like a precious stone, extending on all sides, all round to the horizon, as if the whole terrestrial globe had been one jewel of colossal sapphire, a single gem fashioned into a planet, and on the luster of the great calm waters the Judea glided imperceptibly, enveloped in languid and unclean vapors, in a lazy cloud that drifted to leeward, light and slow, uh, a pestiferous cloud defiling the splendor of sea and sky. And, of course... Uh, he said, uh, we see no fire, but we know the cargo was still uh, uh, having trouble. Well, that's all the time we have for today's program. Next time, we'll discuss Judea's death and her passing's effect on Marlowe and Joseph Conrad's short story, Youth. You can buy Youth at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may uh, also be able to find a copy in your local bookstore. And, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for Just the Best Literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.